Part 1. Storybook. Devon and Hell. Sir Humphrey swilled the last draught of wine from his glass, and his arm dropped to the oak table in tired and final resignation. His fingers released the glass, and with the next pitch and toss of the ship, the glass fell and rolled off the table, smashing on the cabin floor where seawater sloshed its shards against the foot of the bulkhead panelling. A month of a common sailor's wages, such a glass. But no matter. This sturdy little ship, the Squirrel, was foundering, and there would be none to claim her stores. A late-season recrossing of the North Atlantic back home to England was always going to be dangerous, if not downright foolhardy. But sickness, hunger, ill fortune, and other privations had left his remaining crew on the verge of mutiny. Only three of Sir Humphrey's small fleet had still been afloat as they had departed Newfoundland, and one of those three had to be left behind as there were not enough healthy sailors left to man her. Past days had been filled with dark mutterings, signs, and whispering of ill portents. Sir Humphrey had scoffed upon hearing the watch's report, as relayed by the ship's master. The man on watch was no doubt an able seaman, but he had been plucked from a gutter outside a dock worker's tavern in Dartmouth. Such men were to a penny, and all were superstitious beyond measure. The sailor had moderated his usual salty language in an effort to lend some gravitas to his report. Master, a sea monster was sighted, sir, much like a lion with glaring eyes. Sir Humphrey had guffawed. But sir, by your leave, I would tell you that a ball of fire was seen only this day, floating above the fore rigging. And now, at the end, Humphrey was greatly minded to regret his haughty dismissal of the watch's report. Perhaps an augury had been sent to protect him, and once ignored, the price to be paid would be his very own life and the lives of all crew on board. The Virgin Queen, in her majesty and wisdom, had herself once noted that Sir Humphrey was of not good hap by sea. And yet, looking back over his four and a half decades on Earth, he had made a mark nonetheless. He had survived the siege and plague at Le Havre in his twenties. He had laid waste to the Queen's enemies in Ireland in his thirties, sending their heads back to London. He had led English troops alongside the Dutch against the Spanish in the Netherlands, and only weeks earlier, he had stood on a chill, rocky shore among French, Basque, Portuguese, and English fishermen and their Micmac consorts, and claimed Newfoundland for England amid the pompous blare of trumpets. But there would be no reward and no acclaim at the court of Elizabeth. Humphrey Gilbert's infamous bad luck with ships and weather would not be shaken off and his grave would be at the bottom of the sea, a few leagues from safe anchorage in the Azores. Sir Humphrey stood 
legs remarkably steady for a man deep in his cups. He took up not a Bible, but a book of poetry, tucking it inside his gold-embroidered long coat and made his way up to the quarter deck. Binding himself with a leather belt to a chair placed on deck, he shouted his final orders and settled himself to consider his legacy and to commend his soul to the mercy of Providence. Five ships had set sail from England for Newfoundland, and only one, the Golden Hind, would limp back into Falmouth Harbour to tell the tale. An old crewman would tell of his final vision of Commander General Gilbert as he waved a book in the air with one hand, howling verses into the storm winds as his small ship was thrown about by what the old sailor called outrageous seas, before being swallowed into the abyss. Any glory and acclaim attaching to the Gilberts of Devon would be carried henceforth by his son Raleigh Gilbert, named for Sir Humphrey's half-brother, Sir Walter Raleigh. We found the people most gentle, loving, and faithful, void of all guile and treason, and such as live after the manner of the Golden Age. Arthur Barlow, 1584. Monteo moved swiftly through the long grass and blanket flower regularly glancing over his shoulder to make sure the women and children were not lagging. Three hundred paces to his left, only a few yards offshore, his brothers and kinsmen rode, pulling rafts behind them which carried blankets and other supplies, as well as the sick, injured and mothers with suckling babes. In just three years, these strangers from the east had caused more trouble and strife than the Croatan had seen in two lifetimes. Manteo had been the first to spot the ship in the sound and had watched from a cautious distance as three men had rowed toward shore and clambered onto the beach. The one called Simon the Pig had spoken the tongue of the Portuguese, which the oldest among the Croatan had recognized. The ones called Philip and Arthur had spoken a tongue unknown. Manteo had led the men to his village where over the next weeks gifts were exchanged and feasts were held as a gesture of respect. Emissaries had arrived from other nearby tribes and villages to meet these strangers, to learn their tongue and to determine their purpose and intentions. At length, it had become clear that these English, as they called themselves, were hoping to send even more men to Roanoke Island, with an eye toward developing trade with the people of these shores. Some tribes, such as the Sekatan, had been skeptical. Others, such as the Aquascogoc, were openly hostile to the idea. The English had entreated tribal leaders to allow a number among their people to travel back with them over the sea to London, where they might witness for themselves the greatness and power of Her Majesty the Queen, and the industry and wonders wrought by the English people. 
After much discussion, Gran Ganimeo, brother of Sekatan leader Wingina, had agreed to allow his kinsman Wanchesi to accompany Monteo on the great wooden ship to England. Monteo hated the dim, cold and rainy land called England. Yet he was also proud that he had seen things that no Croatan had ever seen. Songs and dances had been composed in his honour, and the children among his people had pointed when he passed by, calling his new name out loud. Monteo, the Fire Traveller. Now they sang and danced his name no more. Manteo had arrived back to Roanoke after many months in England, this time on Sir Richard Grenville's Tiger, which had brought over 100 soldiers, scientists, artists, mapmakers, and miners. None of these men could hunt, none could fish, none would plant or hoe. Even worse, they seemed to expect the people in towns of Roanoke to share their food stores, and worse, to share their women. An emissary had come from a town near Roanoke to complain that the English were offering almost nothing in return for the amount of food being taken. The emissary had taken a silver drinking cup back home with him, as a point of honour so his people might respect him. Returning later to find his cup missing, Sir Richard, in an intemperate rage, had led a party of men against the nearby Aquascogoc village, sacking it of food and valuables before burning it to the ground. Sir Richard had soon departed, and a soldier called Ralph Lane was made leader among the English. A period of relative peace had ensued, and Monteo had spent many pleasant days in the company of John White, travelling from village to village while Master White had made paintings of Monteo's people and joined them in their dances. But a series of tit-for-tat raids and killings had culminated in Ralph Lane's murder of the Sekatan chieftain Wingina, and the people of Roanoke had had enough of Englishmen. As local tribal councils prepared for open war, a ship commanded by a sea warrior called Drake had appeared and taken away the remaining Englishmen. Monteo had breathed a sigh of relief. Many had begun to whisper that Monteo's friendship with the English had brought only disease and killing to Roanoke. His relief had been only short-lived, for only a few weeks later Sir Richard reappeared for a stopover on his way back to England. He summoned Monteo, asking what had become of his men. Monteo explained, and Grenville's face had once more reddened with rage, oaths, and threats directed against his own deserting men, against the upstart commoner Francis Drake, and against the Sekatan and Aquascogoc. Grenville had ordered 15 of his soldiers to remain on Roanoke to guard the abandoned fort. Monteo had realized that these men would be in grave danger. Even more than this, his own life might soon be forfeit. This is why Monteo had made the decision to travel once more to England with Sir Richard, hoping to act as mediator in the deteriorating relations between his people and the English. During his second sea crossing, Monteo had watched as Grenville raided villages and ships in the Azores, and Monteo had watched as Grenville celebrated his successes with feasting and copious amounts of wine. Monteo had watched as a drunk Grenville chewed and swallowed his wine glasses in front of captured Spanish captains, 
blood streaming from his mouth as he laughed at the aghast faces of his hostages. Monteo had looked into the future and seen only ill. Monteo had departed England once more in 1587 by the Christ-year reckoning, this time in the company of his friend John White, and this time with women and children aboard. Just as he had feared prior to his leaving for England, the 15 men left by Grenville had been slain by a confederation of angry Secretan, Aquascoguk, and Dasamonga Punky warriors. White's men had set about repairing the damaged fort, while Monteo had held a council with his own people, telling of the lands and cities he had seen over the sea, explaining that the English were too great a power, and that no Croatan could hope to withstand their ambitions. Better to find a way to trade with and live alongside these newcomers, he counseled. As the weeks passed and neighboring tribes considered how to respond to the latest English settlement attempt, some Englishmen were killed in a nearby forest. In a rare fit of rage, John White himself had set out to avenge their deaths, and his party had stupidly blundered upon and murdered some of Monteo's own people by mistake. Monteo now faced rebellion amongst his own people. John White had departed for England for more supplies after a few weeks, and Monteo's old co-traveller to England, Juan Chesey, had come to Roanoke with words of warning. The Secatan, Aquascoguk, and Azamangapunki would be back, and with words which had sent a chill through Monteo, Juan Chesey had warned that even the distant and powerful Tuscarora had held war councils against the English presence, and against the Croatan in particular for harboring them. Wanchesi himself had come to be mistrusted among many of his own people, and had feared for his own safety once it became known that he had helped Monteo. So it was that they together had formed a plan. Monteo had embraced and thanked his old friend for this intelligence, as they parted ways. Wanchesi had struck out to the northwest for the trading town of Mediquem, farther inland and upriver, bringing half of the English with him. He would offer them as a tribute gift to his uncle in return for safety among his uncle's people. And Monteo of the Roanoke Croatan found himself here, leading his own people and the other half of the English in a desperate 70-mile race along the outer banks to the safety of the town of his own grandfathers. Croaton. I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Privateers and Protestants, Popes and Pirates. By the time the first Englishmen set foot on the continent of North America, 
The Spanish and Portuguese had already built up almost a century of experience in Atlantic sea crossings. Spanish and Portuguese explorers had penetrated deep into the North American interior, as far as what would later be called Tennessee. The Spanish had already attempted to set up colonies in the region later known as the Carolinas, and they had succeeded in founding settlements in Florida. In short, Catholic Spain was the preeminent world power throughout the 1500s. The papacy, with breathtaking hubris, had divided the world in two with an invisible line down the western Atlantic, declaring everything to the east of that line as belonging to Portugal, with everything to the west of this line belonging to Spain. England during this century was little more than a European backwater, and England might have remained a minor player in European history forever, except for one thing. England under Henry VIII had split with the Catholic Church in the 1530s, making Henry, not the Pope, head of the Church in England. This was a personal, political and economic decision, not a religious one, and it would be wrong to think of Henry as being somehow Protestant. Henry was in fact an enemy of England's radical Protestants, those who agitated and advocated for the destruction of Catholicism, rather than a simple Lutheran-style reformation. Henry was far more interested in the wealth he could now strip from the Catholic monasteries, including their gold and vast land holdings. However, by operating outside of European norms, in which monarchs and popes relied on each other for legitimacy, with church and state existing in symbiosis, England found itself out on a dangerous limb. In a few short years, Henry had gone from being anointed a defender of the Catholic faith to being an outright enemy of Catholic Europe. A real Protestant revolution was actually taking place in some corners of Europe, in parts of France, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, and these precipitated the bloody wars of religion. And by the time Henry's daughter Elizabeth ascended the throne in 1558, England had begun to embrace actual Protestantism, in part because England was in dire need of allies against the power of the Catholic monarchs. And no Catholic monarch presented a greater danger to England than Philip II of Spain. This is the point where some people get flashbacks to high school history classes and eyes might begin to glaze over. But this part is essential for understanding what happens next. Imagine monarchies as sports teams with religious groups as fans with their own tastes in music. People will run in gangs based on one, the other, or both affiliations, team or favorite music. The most powerful teams in Europe had Catholic owners, and most of their fans listened to the same music. The smaller upstart teams had Protestant owners, and their fans squabbled constantly over the best kind of music. They even argued over whether people should listen to music at all. Elizabeth would never be able to compete with the Catholic monarchies of Europe with their largely unified religious populations and overwhelming military might. 
the genius of Elizabeth and her advisors lay in recognizing this and identifying smaller gangs, often related to one another, who could be relied upon to stick together and do the dirty ops for the English team. It is doubtful whether any leader before or since has had a gang as bloodthirsty, ruthless, and effective as Elizabeth I's Men of Devon, her pirate navy. Elizabeth and her advisors decided to hit the Spanish where it would hurt most, in their treasury. They would do this by cutting off the supply of silver, gold, and other commodities arriving back to Spain from the New World. England would offer letters of mark to capable men, essentially a license signed by the Queen herself, making piracy legal, as long as the target was Spanish, of course, or any other enemy of England. These legal pirates are known to history as privateers, the idea wasn't exactly new. The Ottoman Empire, French Calvinist Huguenots, and Dutch Protestant sea beggars had been at it for quite some time. Ottoman pirates, including some renegade Dutch, English, and dispossessed Spanish Jews, infested the Barbary coast of North Africa, raiding Christian shipping lanes and Christian coastal towns and villages. Many sailing and trading families from the south coast of England were in regular contact with Huguenot sailors who were already harassing Spanish shipping as far as La Florida, modern Florida, Grenville, Bingham, Gilbert, Hawkins, Drake, Raleigh. Nations tend to appropriate historical figures as their own. And while, yes, all of these men were English, it would be naive and jingoistic to imagine that their actions were done on behalf of the people of England. The men who Elizabeth kept on her long lead truly were in it for themselves, and deeply entangled in the histories of many nations. During the 1500s, the half-dozen men listed above cumulatively fought in France, the Netherlands, South America, Ireland, North America, Spain, Scotland, the Caribbean, Cyprus, Greece, the Azor Islands, Hungary, Panama, Chile, and the Canary Islands, among other places. Even the most conservative of pro-English historians would be hard-pressed to deny that these were a gang of borderline psychopaths to a man. Sir Richard Grenville murdered a man during a riot on the streets of London as a 20-year-old, and we have already heard how he burned an indigenous village to the ground over a simple drinking cup. Sir Humphrey Gilbert was quite matter-of-fact about his employing of terror tactics against the Irish in 1569. I quote, The heads of all those of whosoever they were, which were killed in the day, should be cut off from their bodies and brought to the place where he encamped at night, 
and there should be laid on the ground by each side of the way leading into his own tent, so that none could come to his tent for any cause, but commonly he must pass through a lane of heads, which he used ad terrorum. It brought great terror to the people when they saw the heads of their dead fathers, brothers, children, kinsfolk, and friends. I quote further. The men of war could not be maintained without their churls and callyhacks, old women and those women who milked their crayaks and cows and provided their victuals and other necessaries, so that the killing of them by the sword was the way to kill the men of war by famine. Unquote. Sir Francis Drake's own father was arraigned for violent assault and robbery, with the young Drake then being farmed out to be raised by the Hawkins family of merchant pirates. Drake himself worked as a pirate slave trader during his early years in the Caribbean. Perhaps most shocking was Drake's participation in the notorious Rathlin Island Massacre in Ulster, in 1575, in which English soldiers hunted down elderly Irishmen, the sick and infirm, and their women and children in the caves where they had taken refuge, slaughtering them in front of their relatives. Drake's superior at the time can almost be heard smirking in the letter he wrote to Lord Walsingham, noting how sorely boy MacDonald was like to run mad from sorrow as he watched his wife, children, family, and kinsmen being slain. Sir Walter Raleigh was also deeply involved in the brutality being visited upon Ireland, and was part of the death squad responsible for the infamous massacre following the Siege of Smerwick in 1580. The execution of captives was no incidence of sudden bloodlust during the heat of battle. It was methodical, and took place over two days. Many of the captives were beheaded in a field known locally in Irish as Gortnagiri, or the field of cutting, with many bodies being thrown into the sea. Another nearby field is known locally to this day as Gortnagiri, the field of the heads. Raleigh would later argue at a trial in 1610 that he was obliged to obey the commands of his superior officer a line prescient of the defense given by Nazis during the Nuremberg trials. Volumes have been filled detailing the lives of these men, and almost all biographies mention daring, they mention bravery, and a spirit of adventure. The shortest biographies sum up each of these men with nearly the exact same words. Take Sir Walter Raleigh. A typical summary of his person taken from any encyclopedia states, writer, poet, soldier, politician, courtier, spy, explorer. And yet none of those words taken in isolation give us a real picture of the actual man. It's rather like describing Hitler as an artist, writer, soldier, politician, orator, and war leader. What actually makes history interesting is trying to understand how a man could spend two days beheading humans in a clifftop field, but could then also retire to his tent to write quite moving 
and introspective poetry. It is worth noting that Raleigh was a contemporary of Shakespeare, and that Shakespeare was himself related to men who would settle Jamestown only a few years after Roanoke. It is all oddly reminiscent of the ancient Scythians of the Russian steppes, who made goblets from the skulls of their enemies, but decorated those skull cases with some of the finest goldwork ever wrought by human hand. These are also the questions explored by Joseph Conrad in his novel Heart of Darkness, 250 years later. The reason for pointing out these atrocities here, though, is to dismiss the idea that violence between Europeans and indigenous Americans was the result of some regrettable misunderstandings. This was a generation of men happy to dole out death and violence with little discrimination, all in the name of personal glory. Turk, Venetian, Catholic, Irish, Spanish, Secaton, or French, all were equal under the sword. Queen Elizabeth's privateers, soldiers, explorers, her men of Devon, understood fully the nature of violence and terror. To men who had crossed oceans and continents seeking wealth and glory, spilling lakes of blood along the way, what was a single sword stroke to a savage? Or a torch to the roof of a Secaton house? Perhaps the very power to mete out death and destruction so casually made them feel somehow more alive. After arriving back in England to collect supplies for the Roanoke Island settlers, John White, leader of the third and final Roanoke expedition, got swept up in the events of 1588 as Queen Elizabeth's navy of pirates and privateers successfully fought off the great Spanish Armada sent by Philip II to invade England. Fretting endlessly, White was finally able to outfit a tiny two-ship fleet for the relief of Roanoke, a fleet which was promptly intercepted and looted by the French navy, sending White back to England with his tail between his legs. Only after another year had passed was White finally able to raise more funds to equip another return trip to the coast of Virginia with a humble fleet of three. This is the point at which American schoolchildren usually take up the story, and history begins to veer into the territory of foundational mythology. The story of Virginia Dare, granddaughter of John White, and how she was the first English or white person born on American soil. A subsequent tragedy, a disappeared colony, mysterious letters carved into a tree, the original American mystery. And who doesn't love a mystery, especially a mystery involving supposedly indecipherable and tantalizing clues? For over 400 years, historians and laymen alike have speculated as to the fate of the 117 men, women, and children of the so-called lost colony of Roanoke. And yet, two things have always been clear. First of all, the colonists had agreed to leave a mark in the form of a Maltese cross if their enterprise were to end in violence, captivity, or any other such unwelcome fate. 
John White himself, with an optimism perhaps tempered by feelings of guilt, counted it as clear evidence of the colony's survival that no such distress mark or sign was ever found. Secondly, White himself had declared his heart was filled with hope, if not joy, upon finding the word Croatone carved into the wooden palisade of the makeshift fort, along with the letters Crow carved into a nearby tree. After all, Manteo and his Croatan people were the only real allies of the English settlers on that foreign shore, and it seemed eminently sensible to presume that under threat of attack or famine, the colonists would choose to evacuate to the territory of friendly Indians. John White searched in vain for his family along the coast, until foul weather forced him to abandon his plans to overwinter in the Caribbean. Instead, setting a course back to England. He would never see his family again. The first permanent English settlement in North America would be founded a short 17 years later, about 140 miles to the north of Roanoke at Jamestown. Settlers at Jamestown were well aware of the possibility of finding Roanoke survivors, and they paid particular attention to local Paspahe reports of Englishmen living among nearby tribes but none were ever found. What is our life? A play of passion. Our mirth, the music of division. Our mother's wombs, the tiring houses be, where we are dressed for this short comedy. Heaven the judicious sharp spectator is that sits and marks still who doth act amiss. Our graves that hide us from the setting sun are like drawn curtains when the play is done. Thus march we plain to our latest rest, only we die in earnest, that's no jest. Sir Walter Raleigh actually happened to the colony at Roanoke. Today we have perhaps three avenues for moving any investigation forward. Archaeology, DNA evidence, and perhaps folklore and other circumstantial evidence. As to the archaeological evidence, European items have recently been found during an excavation in 1998 at Cape Creek on Hatteras Island, the modern name for Croatone. Finds included a signet ring, a writing slate with pencil, the partial hilt of a rapier, and some iron and copper ingots. Using X-ray spectroscopy in 2012, an inland location for a fort was found marked, but hidden, on a map made by none other than John White himself. This Site X, to date, has yielded pottery shards dated to the late 1500s, along with balusters, parts of flintlock guns, tanning or tent hooks, aglets for woolworking, 
and gun barrels converted for tapping tree sap. As to DNA evidence, the sheer complexities involved require that this evidence be dealt with in some depth in future episodes. But, as for anyone skeptical of the extent of inter-ethnic mixing during the earliest colonial times, just remember Humphrey Gilbert planting the English flag on a cold shore in Newfoundland in 1584. And remember the bemused multi-ethnic community of fishermen who witnessed it. The descendants of those fishermen and their Mi'kmaq and Beothuk consorts did not simply go extinct. Only this year, a man from Tennessee was astonished upon taking a DNA test to discover that he is directly related to Sean Adithit, a 19th century chieftain of the Beothuk of Newfoundland, a tribe thought to have gone extinct in 1829. Also a tribe which made its home 3,000 kilometers from Nashville. When we turn to folklore and other circumstantial evidence, things become even more interesting. From Oregon to Florida, and from Texas to New Jersey, there are American population groups commonly and wrongly referred to as tri-racial isolate communities. This misnomer is a hangover from 20th century white anthropologists who were unable to conceive of ethnic categories more complex than black, white, Indian, or Asian, and also unable to escape thinking in terms of races. One such community can be found mainly in Robeson, Hoke, Cumberland, and Scotland counties in North Carolina, a people who call themselves the Lumbee, presumably after the Lumber River, which flows through many Lumbee communities. Lumbee ancestry is profoundly multi-ethnic, including peoples from America, Europe, Africa, and very likely people from the old Spanish and Portuguese empires. Because of this complex ancestry, the Lumbee have suffered from both internal and external pressures to pick an identity from one of the accepted boxes. And for decades, the Lumbee tried to tick the box marked Indian, but the people in power told them to tick the box marked black. And the Lumbee said it again. We're really more Indian. Under the American racialist caste system, however, to display any sign of African ancestry whatsoever has historically meant that a person is automatically categorized as black. To be black in America has always been synonymous with descended from slaves. Except there have always been people of color in America who are not descended from slaves and these people intermixed freely across artificial race lines. But if white America had ever chosen to accept such a version of history, it would have undermined a caste structure in which black has always equaled slave, former slave, descendant of slaves, or at the very least, lessness or subservience. Being part or even half white 
has never forced anyone to tick the white box. In fact, it's not culturally even allowable. But being even a small part black forces one to tick the black box. The absurdity of such racist thinking is brought home when we reverse the situation again. When a person of color displays any sign of European ancestry, let's say, for example, freckles or green eyes, we do not automatically lump them into a category called white. You get my point. So the Lumbee said it again and again. We're Indian. Professors and politicians and eugenicists and anthropologists and white supremacists demanded to know exactly to which tribe their ancestors belonged. And this is where the real tragedy of ethnic cleansing and racism is most raw. The fact is, even the Lumbee themselves were often unsure of their exact origins. You see, centuries spent on the margins, being hated for being part Indian, being hated for being part black, being hated most of all for being mixed, with poor access to opportunities, poor access to education, loss of indigenous language, loss of indigenous land, destruction of a common culture, and amalgamation with multiple other disenfranchised groups, made it hard to attach these people to any specific Eastern tribe. In other words, much like the Melungeons of Southern Appalachia, their former identities have been lost in the fog of a centuries-long racist war. American racism has meant that the Lumbee, in the eyes of the mainstream at least, could not possibly be Indians, never mind actual living representatives of the lost colony of Roanoke. In America, being even part black creates an identity stripped of ethnicity, history, or nuance. Black is just black to the average white person. Except that it is not. Ask the people of Robeson County about the exploits of Henry Barry Lowry, the Robin Hood of the Lumbee, or ask them about the Battle of Hayes Pond, that night in 1958 when the Lumbee refused to allow the KKK to assemble in their community and made short work of them. A people perhaps sometimes uncertain of who they were, but very certain about who they are. Bearing in mind that the modern Lumbee almost certainly share an element of Tuscarora ancestry, it is interesting to read of an old belief among some members of the 20th century Tuscarora community, which stated that the Tuscarora were being punished to this day for their attack on the English and Croatan at Roanoke. These people had claimed that some members of their family and community were cursed with the Tuscarora Eye, or Evil Eye. And what was the nature of this Evil Eye? Why, just the occasional appearance of children born with blue, grey, or green eyes, 
which some Tuscarora believed to be a reminder of the captives their ancestors had taken at Roanoke. It is unclear whether the Tuscarora Eye was believed to have arrived via Roanoke men or women, or indeed via some supernatural source. It is interesting to note that surnames found among the colonists at Roanoke, such as Taverner, Archard, Coleman, and Jones, are still common among multi-ethnic families of the Carolinas and southern Appalachia. Many modern Lumbee people, such as the late Lumbee historian Adolf Dial, have held to a tradition connecting them with the lost people of Roanoke and local indigenous tribes. John Lawson, an English surveyor and explorer born during the latter part of the 1600s, wrote about his travels among the indigenous tribes of the Carolinas during the early 1700s. There can be scarcely any doubt that post-Reconstruction era American racism is the reason behind the modern disregard given to the startling claims made by Lawson in his Journey Through the Carolinas, published shortly before his torture and death at the hands of the Tuscarora in 1711. John Lawson wrote very clearly, and I quote, As to the Hatteras Indians and Roanoke, it is probable that this settlement miscarried for want of timely supplies from England, or through the treachery of the natives. For we may reasonably suppose that the English were forced to cohabit with them, for relief and conversation, and that in the process of time they conformed themselves to the manners of their Indian relations. And thus we see how apt human nature is to degenerate. A farther confirmation of this we have from the Hatteras Indians, who either then lived on Roanoke Island or much frequented it. They value themselves extremely for their affinity to the English, and are ready to do them all friendly offices. These tell us that several of their ancestors were white people, and could talk in a book, as we do, the truth of which is confirmed by grey eyes being found frequently amongst these Indians, and no others. Modern digitization of historical and genealogical records has made it possible to trace the ancestry of many Lombie people with reasonable certainty back to at least the mid-1700s and in some cases right back to the 1600s. With the best information currently to hand, it appears clear that many Lombie share a mixed ancestry including Tuscarora, Chero, Spanish slash Portuguese, North African, Sub-Saharan African, British Isles, which likely includes some British Romany, and de-tribalized Indians from Eastern Shore and Tidewater, Virginia. It is worth noting that the Spanish slash Portuguese element can include people drawn from throughout the realm of those empires. 
anywhere from Indonesia to India to Madagascar to the Caribbean and South America. Such connections are clearly attested in the survival of anglicized Iberian surnames among these communities. Driggers from Rodriguez, Shavers from Chavez, Diaz from Diaz, and so on. So the question of descent from the Roanoke colony becomes one of likelihood rather than outright fact. Is there any reason to rule out the possibility that the blood of the Roanoke settlers and their Croatan allies still flows through the veins of at least some modern Lumbee and other old mix American communities? No, there is not. And one other thing is still true to this day. The combination of black hair and blue-gray eyes remains strikingly rare, most commonly found in the Baltic region, especially Estonia. Oh, and in just a couple more places. Black hair and gray eyes are also still common amongst the old mixed American communities of the Carolina Piedmont, Southern Appalachia, the Ozarks, and other rural and mountainous places where Europe, Asia, and Africa first met indigenous America. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by me, Brian Halpin. Sound engineering by John Wilkinson. Main theme and additional music performed by Dave McLaughlin and Rodney Lancashire. If you enjoyed listening and would like to help ensure further episodes, please consider supporting us by visiting beforewewerewhite.com. Thank you.